Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 6 through 18. Please give your attention to God's word. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Probably one of the best known popular bands in the world is the band U2. And if you know anything about the band U2, you know that they have been a perplexing group for those of us who are Christians to try to figure out where they're coming from spiritually. Three of the four members of that band have professed to be followers of Jesus Christ, and they've never renounced that claim. They've always consistently claimed to be Christians. But many and many of their lyrics and, and much of their lifestyle would support those claims, but there are things that they say and do and things that sometimes they put in songs that make Christians wonder where exactly they're coming from. None of us, of course, can know their hearts. But as you analyze their lyrics, it's and I, many Christians find a, a, a very fascinating hobby at analyzing lyrics to their songs because, like many popular songs, they're, the meaning of many artists try to make their meaning not entirely clear, and sometimes it's very subjective how you interpret them. But one of the best examples of this kind of of uh, wrestling with where they're coming from is in the very probably one of their best known songs called "I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For." And if you know probably the key part of that song, it says this, You broke the bonds, you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And it's that last phrase that leaves us perplexed. Skeptics about their Christianity, their faith, will say, see, they're saying that Jesus isn't enough. They need something more than Jesus. 
As I've studied their life and lyrics, I think what they're really saying is, I am saved by faith in Christ, but my salvation isn't complete yet. I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet. I'm still, I still haven't found all that I'm looking for. I think what they're saying, and I may be wrong, is they're alluding to that theological tension that's in Scripture between the already of our salvation, everything that was accomplished for us at the cross, and the not yet of our salvation, that it is not nearly complete. And there's still so much more that we long for. I believe that Christians, if they properly understand themselves in the world, will live in kind of a, what John Piper calls, satisfied discontentment or holy discontentment. The band itself calls that song a gospel song about spiritual yearning. And I don't know about you, but there's still a lot of spiritual yearning in my life, even though I feel I have found the answers in Christ. Even as believers, we are still discontent because things are not nearly what they should be. As we began to study John's gospel last week, we saw that he talks about this tension between what we hope for and what we've experienced of life in Christ with what we know is still to come. John introduces that theological concept, that spiritual concept, in his imagery of light and darkness. We're going to see this through the entire Gospel of John, that the the metaphor or the, the, the imagery of light and darkness is a very important spiritual concept to him. We talked about it just a bit last week. Basically, as he sees it, in the world, in the universe, there's this conflict and this tension between spiritual light and spiritual darkness. And as we said last week, darkness, spiritual darkness, speaks to that brokenness, the broken state of the world, spiritually speaking. The evil that is here, the suffering, the sin, the loneliness, the alienation, the oppression, the injustice, the meaninglessness of life, and all of it ends in death, which is the darkest of all darkness. But John here introduces the idea of light, that light is the opposite of all those things, spiritually speaking. Light is righteousness and purity, it's justice, it's love, it's community, it's peace, it's contentment, and it ends in eternal joy. In verses 1 to 3 that we looked at last week, John introduced us to the Word. The Word is a term, the Logos is a term that John uses to refer to Jesus Christ. And he gives us that amazing, huge, unfathomable concept that Jesus Christ, the Word, existed before creation. He existed eternally before creation with the God the Father, with God the Father, as the eternal Son of God. And not only did he exist eternally with God the Father, on an equal plane with the Father, but he also, with the Father, created the universe. And then in verses 4 and 5, he says, In him, in the Word, in Jesus Christ, was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the light that truly satisfies men, women, and children created in the image of God. As we come to today's passage, John shifts his focus from eternity past to the first century A.D. He begins to bring the story into history. And he begins in the first century, where he says in verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light was coming into the world in the days of John. It's interesting that the light only came gradually into this dark, fallen world. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so as John begins, and he's going to basically begin folding this through the entire gospel, but as he begins to introduce us to this idea that Jesus Christ is this light that satisfies our spiritual longing, let's see in this passage how he talks about the light. How is Jesus this light that brings us our eternal contentment and satisfaction? First of all, he says that Jesus is the ultimate light. The promised light. The last word, as he will say. The Apostle John here introduces us to John the Baptist. All of a sudden, in the middle of this talking about eternal, the eternal existence of Christ, he introduces us to John the Baptist. And as we'll see as we move into chapter 1, John the Baptist is a key figure in the story of the life of Christ. He says there was a man sent from God. And when you think about John the Baptist, interestingly, even though his life and his ministry is recorded for us here in the beginning of the New Testament, he is actually, in the whole history of redemption, he is actually the last prophet of the Old Testament. We tend to think of Malachi as being the last prophet of the Old Testament because he's at the end of the Old Testament. But John the Baptist is actually the last prophet of the Old Covenant period. When the human race was plunged into this spiritual darkness that we just described a moment ago, this brokenness, this evil, this sin, the loneliness, alienation, oppression, all this darkness, when the world was plunged into that darkness through the sin of Adam and Eve, remember how God responded to their rebellion. Really, the Garden of Eden was the light in a real sense. Living in the light, that's really what the Garden of Eden was, wasn't it? They saw God face to face. They walked with God in the garden. They lived in obedience and righteousness and joy and peace and complete contentment. That's the last time that absolute complete contentment was known on the face of the earth was in the Garden of Eden. But when they were led astray by Satan and they rebelled against the authority of God, he cast them out of the garden, so therefore he cast them out of the light into what scriptures would later call the outer darkness. Separated from God. And really, if you want to talk about what spiritual darkness is, that's what it is in a footnote, or in a, in just a phrase. It's being separated eternally from the presence of God. But it's interesting that as he plunged them into that outer darkness outside of the garden, he didn't leave them. He had every right to. 
They had rebelled against him. The wages of sin is death and eternal death and separation from God. But what did he do? He showed grace to them and he showed grace to them by speaking to them. He spoke to them. He gave them hope. He promised them that one day a seed of the woman, one from the line of Adam and Eve, would come. And he would crush the head of the serpent. He would destroy the source of the darkness. And he would bring light. God continued to speak in his grace to those of faith of the line of Adam and Eve. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to David. He spoke to the prophets. He spoke to his people about this one who would bring light. And the more he spoke to his people about the light, the brighter the the light, or at least the shadow from the light became. As he had promised to Moses, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. It is to him that you shall listen. A final spokesman would come, one who would speak for God with finality, an ultimate prophet. A final word would come. And throughout the Old Testament, God's people waited in faith for this one. And then comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist appeared. And John here says, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist was not only the last prophet, he was what you would call the penultimate prophet. If Christ is the ultimate prophet, then John the Baptist was the penultimate prophet, the forerunner to the ultimate prophet. Let me take you back again to Hebrews 1. This is such a, it's no mistake that we keep referring to Hebrews 1 because it really is the best parallel passage to John chapter 1. And what the writer of Hebrews says there in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's that grace. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, this eternal son who is an intimate fellowship with the father in eternity past before creation. Through this Son, He has spoken to us in these last days, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Jesus isn't only the Word. Jesus is the final Word. His apostles, by His commission, has given, has given, they have given us His Word. We have the apostolic eyewitness to the Word of Christ. And we don't need any further Word. That's one thing that's really important for us to understand is that the God, the the ultimate prophet, the final word has spoken. Jesus Christ has brought us all the revelation that we need until our salvation is complete. It's important that we stress that in a day and age and a world where people are looking for something beyond the revealed word. They're looking for visions. They're looking for dreams. They're looking for prophets. They're looking for further light. But God has fully spoken. The entire word that we need from God in order to know God has been given. 
Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet in the final word. I say this to underline the importance of the revealed word of Scripture. Everything we need to know for life and godliness is contained in this revealed word as it reveals to us Jesus Christ. All the light that we need until Christ comes again is here. Does your life reflect that belief? Are you living by the word? Are you depending upon the word? Are you content with what God has revealed through his son? Well, secondly, John says, not only is Jesus Christ the ultimate word, the final prophet, the ultimate light, but he is the true light, he says in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, there's the English word true can mean has different connotations to it, can mean many different things. But in the Greek, the word that John chooses here to say that Jesus Christ is the true light means real. It means genuine, as opposed to fake or counterfeit. There are many claims to light out there in the world. But Jesus Christ is the true light. There are many false lights, many false religions, false philosophies, false truth claims. Jesus Christ is the true light. Reminds me of Psalm 36, verse 9. Psalm 36 has a phrase in there that's always fascinated me. It says, with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. The light of God, in the light of God, we see light. In other words, as the light of God's revelation shines upon us, we are able then to determine what is light in this world of darkness. We have come out of, or kind of in what they call the post-postmodern culture, but postmodern thinking is still so typical, the way that people approach the world. And one of the key tenets of postmodern philosophy is that everybody's perception of truth should be considered equal. That there is no concept of absolute truth, and that everyone has their own take on the truth, and that we are not to be judging others' subjective perception of truth. Well, this statement by John directly contradicts that. Jesus is the true light who gives light to everyone. The word of Christ, the revelation that Christ has given us by his word, is the light, and it is the standard by which we judge all other lights in the world. The light of science, the light of philosophy, the light of religion, the light of art, whatever light we look to, we judge it by the true light, the word of Christ. It's interesting that John says that Christ gives this true light to everyone. How is that true? If Jesus Christ gives his true light to everyone, then why is anyone still groping or running away in the darkness? The best illustration for, to help me understand that is the sun itself. The sun shines its light on the entire created earth. And those who have the gift of sight see it and see by it. But those who are blind are not affected by it. 
And so the light, the true light of Christ shines everywhere upon all men of all tribes, of all nations, of all races. And yet, as John goes on to say, many, most, I would even say, don't receive it. Verse 10, he says, even though the whole world should have recognized him as its creator, it says the world did not know him. The world did not know him. The Gentiles had the light of creation, but they were blinded by their sin and their hatred of God. As Paul says in Romans 1, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Over in chapter 3, John speaks of this natural state of the human heart. We are born sinners. We are born with a rebellious nature. And Jesus describes it here in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You and I were born in that kind of spiritual blindness. We were born in that kind of spiritual darkness. We did not see the light We did not comprehend the light. We didn't even want the light. We hated the light, Jesus says, because our hearts were hardened in sin. As Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks for God. Well, they may seek for a God. They may seek for many types of gods. But no one seeks for Yahweh, the covenant God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. In verse 11, It says that he, the word, the light, he came even to his own people and they rejected them, rejected him. These are the people who had so much light in the Old Testament. They had the covenant of grace. They had the law. They had the temple. They had the priests. They had the sacrifices. They had the prophets. And yet they consistently over and over again, rejected the true light from God. They had rejected the light so often, so consistently, that even when the true light, the final word, the ultimate prophet, came into the world, they didn't recognize him. And they rejected him. This was the rejection that caused Jesus to weep as he rode up to Jerusalem. Do you remember what he said as he wept over Jerusalem? He said, would that you, speaking to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He came to bring peace. And if you know the Hebrew word shalom, It's really, again, a description of what spiritual light is. It's not just the the absence of war. It's the presence of the favorable presence of God, the blessing of God. It's the blessings of the Garden of Eden, walking with God in peace and joy eternally. It's shalom. It's peace. That's what Christ came to bring. But their foolish hearts were darkened, and it says these things were hidden from their eyes. They were blind to the light. Remember how Paul responded to the blindness of the Jews in Romans 9. He marvels 
that with all the light that they had been given, that they still did not recognize Christ and they rejected him. He says in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You see, we who do see the light should be grieving over the blindness of so many around us. And it also drives home the fact that if even his own people, if the Jews who had so much light given to them, if they could not recognize him, if they could reject him, then still those who live in the context of all the religious trappings of the church can be blind to the true light. In verses 12 and 13, John, though, gives us the good news. But many from Israel and many from the Gentiles did receive the light of Christ and they did believe in him. And it says they were given as a gift, as a gift of grace. They were given the status of being children of God. How did that happen? How did they go from being blind and hardened in sin and living and groping in the darkness to seeing the light of Christ and believing in Christ and receiving Christ and living in Christ. How did it happen? Well, John in verse 13 tells us it comes from a new birth. We're going to talk a lot about that new birth in John chapter 3. But here he introduces the idea. That hunger, that desire to seek the true God comes as a gift from God too. None of us is born with it. He says, it's not of blood. And literally in the Greek there, it's plural. It's not of bloods. And what he's alluding to there is he's saying it's not by physical birth. It's not by the father and the mother coming together and forming a new birth. It's not a physical birth like our our original birth, our, phys- our when we were born into this world. It's not like that. It's not through DNA. It's not through blood. Secondly, he says it's not of the will of the flesh. It wasn't because of our sexual the sexual desires of, of two people coming together that this new birth takes place. It's not of the will of man, he says. It didn't come by family planning or the choice of any parents. He says this birth is of God. It's not a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. It's a supernatural birth. That takes place. It's initiated by God. He invades the heart of a darkened sinner. He takes that heart of stone that we're born with away and gives us a heart of of living flesh, spiritually living flesh. And our nature is changed. And we begin to seek. Our eyes, our spiritual eyes are opened. And we're able to see spiritual reality for what it is by faith. And what do we see when that change happens? Well, that's the third aspect of the light of Christ that John refers to here. That Jesus is the light of God's glory. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I wish I had time to expound upon that. 
We think of this verse often in the Christmas season. But it is the clearest, most succinct statement of the incarnation that we have in all of Scripture. That this eternal, divine Son of God, who existed in eternity past with the Father, who created all things with the Father, in addition to his divine nature, he took upon himself a human nature. He added a human nature to his divine nature, became fully God and fully man, except without sin. And that mysterious act of God was done so that we might see the light in all of its fullness. It says that he did this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, literally, it's an interesting Greek word that John chooses there. It means to pitch a tent. He pitched a tent among us. And of course, what that speaks to, first of all, is that his presence here on earth was a temporary thing. But that's not really what John's alluding to here. The word To, to say that God, the son, eternal Son of God, pitched a tent in our midst would make any Jewish person in the 